Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Episode 50 of the Intercooler podcast. And I remember to say Intercooler there, um, although I have got a prompt in my hand. That's quite good, isn't it? Indeed, do I. Look at that. (laughs) Branded goods. (laughs) Things must be looking up. If, unless you're watching on YouTube, you won't know what we're talking about now. Andrew and I have a couple of prototype TI-branded mugs. Um, we might investigate this a bit more in the future. Um, but I think we do need a Drive Nation swear jar. If anyone says DN or Drive Nation, in goes a quid. Um, okay. And when the pub's open, we'll spend it there. So, okay, we're, we're evens for the time being. Um, now, later on this week, as the podcast goes out, F1 winter testing gets underway, which is always an exciting moment for us isn't it because it's it sort of sig- signals the the start of the motorsport season uh, we get to watch f1 cars running around a circuit again against the stopwatch and we we can get all worked up about the season uh, ahead of us now yeah and we, we do that thing where we all try to guess who's fastest but because everybody's running different tires different fuel yeah. loads different strategies yeah. different actually you learn nothing whatever nothing at all and they they keep uh they keep making changes to the cars before the first round of the season don't they and yeah it's it really you don't learn much at all but we can't help ourselves getting excited year after year um now most of the cars have been unveiled haven't they we saw the aston martin last week i think it's a great color scheme what what do you reckon it's really really good i think it's really really cool i mean some people have been a bit sniffy about it um i just think i think it looks fantastic and you know and Formula One cars, I don't think, are inherently great-looking things at the moment because they've got all this stuff on them and everything else. And I know that, you know, obviously, you know, form must follow function at a distance of a you know a million miles in that, and I completely understand that. But um, I actually think um, the liveries this year are pretty good. I think they're going to be some pretty cool-looking cars out there. Um, yeah. So I mean, I thought the Mercedes looked mega. Um, the even the Haas, you know, you're not going to miss it, are you? No, um, no, I, I, I never much liked the pink racing point, so I'm quite pleased that that's now being replaced by a lovely, classy green Aston Martin. Um, I, I, I'll wait until I've seen the, the Alpine on circuit, but I, I kind of wish they'd just gone with that bright blue color that you know, the A110, the signature color, just because it would yeah. pop, it would really stand out, and there, there aren't any yeah, other blue cars on the grid. Um, and I don't really so, understand why they didn't. Yeah. You would have thought it would be a, um, a no-brainer. Mm. Yeah, you would. Well, we'll see what it looks like. Um, well, actually, later on this week, won't we, when the cars actually start running on track. Um, now, we're not going to use this as an opportunity to do a season preview. Maybe we'll do that later on, closer to the start of the season. Um, instead, we're, we're just going to use the start of winter testing as a hook to talk about our favourite F1 cars. Often we talk about the drivers and the teams and uh, the specific races, but I think talking about the cars themselves is um, is a, a little bit different. So we're, we're going to talk about our favourite F1 cars, the F1 cars that have changed the game more than any other, um, and perhaps the worst F1 cars as well, because why not? Um, so there's, there's only one candidate. 
Okay, yeah, um, I did laugh when I read your, your notes on that car. So, yeah, looking forward to hearing you talk about that one. Um, right, well, let's get stuck in then. You've, Andrew, sent over a whole list of cars, and I suspect this was all off the top of your head, wasn't it? You didn't look up any of this. Uh, actually, the more modern stuff I do have to look up, only okay. because, not because I don't know the cars, it's usually things like I, I just can't remember which season they ran in. Yeah. Um, so I kind of looked that up, but no, I knew I, I knew all the cars. Um, yeah, um, but yeah, you know, just had to look up a little bit of the more recent stuff. Okay, well, let's kick off with the most game-changing F1 cars, right? And yeah, I, I do like that you've your first entry uh, arrives only a year after the start of F1. Although I suppose we had yes. Grand Prix racing before then, didn't we? Um, well, ex- exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Well, t- tell us then about the 1951 Ferrari 375. Okay, so uh, from before the war, so from about 1938 onwards, um, the one and a half litre formula, which became the new formula, Formula One, um, was completely and utterly dominated by Alfa Romeo. They had a thing called the 158, um, supercharged straight eight, uh, monster of a thing. Uh, and it just won everything. It won everything. I mean, in 1950, the first year of the Formula One World Championship, uh, it won every single race. It's never happened since. Okay, there were only, I think, six rounds, if you don't count the Indy 500, which was technically a round of the championship, but no one does count that. Um, so, except the Indy 500, it won every single round. And the view was that it was going to be unbeatable um, because it had so much power. And they had, you know, they had the greatest drivers. You know, they had Fangio and they had Farina and, you know, and all the guys. Um, but Ferrari decided that they would try and you know, if you can't beat them, don't join them, just do something different. And what he did, but the rules allowed you to have one and a half litre supercharged car or a four and a half litre normally aspirated car. And everybody knew you couldn't get as much power out of a naturally aspirated um, four and a half litre car as you could a one and a half litre supercharged car. But what you could do was use a lot less fuel. Um, and there was a race actually uh, in uh, Belgium, the Belgian Grand Prix in 1950. Nobody remembers this because the bloke I'm talking about didn't finish the race. But there was a bloke called Raymond Sommer, who's one of my heroes, in a knackered old private Talbot, actually found himself leading the race because he didn't have to stop for fuel. To the extent that the Alpha team sent a deputation to the timekeepers to try to convince them that they got their charts wrong and the fact he, he wasn't leading that they were. Um, sadly, he um, he didn't finish the race. The car broke, and he got killed before the end of the year. Um, but that alone, and Enzo Ferrari specifically name checks that. That was the race in which he suddenly thought, "Ha, ah, hang on, there's something here." Um, and so he went and he built, uh, or actually um, Aurelia Lampredi built him a four and a half liter V12. And at the British Grand Prix in 1951. Froilon Gonzalez, the Argentinian Pampas Bull, as he was known, won the British Grand Prix in a four and a half litre Ferrari. Alfa Romeo only won one more race that season and hasn't won a Grand Prix since. And Ferrari, as we know, has gone on to be Ferrari. And that was Ferrari's first Grand Prix win. So there you go. Wow. That's why oh, that a game changer. That, that is a great, that really is a game changer. And my Do father you know, was there. My father oh, was at that goodness. race. He was, yeah. what would he would have been? He would have been 12 at the time. And he used to talk about seeing Gonzalez, who was this short squat bloke, massive, built, built like a bull, sliding this thing out of woodcut um, with Fangio in the Alpha giving vain chase. It was, a, it, was, it was a cracking race by all accounts. If you had the cash, you'd pay a million pounds to have been there, wouldn't you? Oh, what a thing. What a thing to witness. I mean, of course, back then, people didn't realise what Ferrari was going to become. I mean, Ferrari itself was only three years old at the time, so it was a very new company. 
Um, but of course, Mr. Ferrari, because all the stuff he'd done with Alfa Romeo before the war, he was a very well-known chap. Um, and I think people would, you know, in much the same way that we all look forward to the end of total domination of the sport by any one team. You know, I have nothing but admiration and respect for Mercedes-Benz and what they're doing. But I do wish someone would beat them because, you know, that's what sport's all about. Um, and I think that sense that actually these guys aren't unbeatable and that Ferrari has found a way of doing it, um, you know, would have been so exciting. Do you know what? It's, it's, it's a really interesting point because, yeah, we would like to see some more competition for Mercedes, but we just know that it's not going to happen. No one's going to come along with some new innovation, use an enormous V12 rather than a, a hybrid turbo no, the, engine. The, the, I mean, I, and that's why so many of these cars, <coughs> particularly the game-changing cars that we're going to talk about, um, are actually from quite a long time ago. Because the rule book just wouldn't allow you to have a choice of a one and a half litre, even turbocharged car or four and a half litre normally aspirated car. Um, and I'm not sure why not. Mm. Um, you know, it, would that it not just make things a bit it? more exciting? Do you remember at Le Mans? I mean, not long ago, you had diesel cars, you had petrol cars, you had uh, hybrid cars, you had non-hybrid cars, you had two-wheel drive cars, you had four-wheel drive cars, you actually had a front-wheel drive car there, you had cars whose hybrid systems were based on batteries, supercapacities, flywheels, there was so much variation, and then when you chuck them all out and qualify, they're all within like a second of each other, you know? Yeah, there's so there's no variability in F1 at all, I think if you take no. the liveries off, could you tell one car from another? I, do you know what, I very I'm sure there are some people who could, but I couldn't. Um, It'd be really interesting to go to someone like Adrian Newey, wouldn't it, and say, how much, be honest, how much of your Formula One car is designed for you? By yeah, the rule. Yeah, how, you know, yeah. how much tweaking can you do? I mean, I would guess it's 95%. And clearly that 5% is what makes all the difference. But um, yeah, I don't know. That's a good point. Anyway. Okay, well, we, you've, you've written a long list of game changing F1 cars here, so we do need to rattle through them. Um, yeah, yeah. 1954. Mercedes W196. Yeah. There's Madronic valve gear. This wasn't a game changer because nobody picked it up afterwards. Uh, I'll be very brief with this. Um, but this was a device. So instead of having valve springs, it actually had mechanical devices which picked up the valve physically. I mean, valve springs have um, harmonic frequencies. And so any valve spring will only work to a certain RPM. Beyond that, it breaks and your engine breaks. Well, Desmodronic took that problem away. Um, and so the engines were able to a rev higher and b they basically never broke and so they were both in formula one and 54 and 55 and then in sports cars with the 300 slr and 55 uh, they were i mean they did they retired from monaco in 55 but that was about it they just basically they never broke and you know and they were the fastest thing out there so they won everything move on next Okay, good. So from 54 to 58. And this is a big one, really big one. The Cooper T43. Um, Yeah. So it was the first mid-engined F1 car? It was the first one. Yes, I suppose. Yes, if you take it as Formula One being World Championship Formula One, auto unions were mid-engined cars before the war and they were winning Grand Prix in the the 1930s. But um, yeah, I mean, in Argentina in 1958... um, Sterling Moss turned up in a two-litre car with against all the opposition with two and a half litres um, in this mid-engine Cooper. Um, and they hatched a plan to try and win the race because the mid-engine configuration was so light in its tyres without having to stop for new tyres. 
uh, and they didn't tell anybody about this uh, to the extent they actually had people waving him in and telling him to come and get his tyres changed so nobody would suspect what they're up to and he ran the entire race on the same set of tyres finished it with bits of canvas sticking out the sidewalls um, and by the end of that race everybody realised that their front well apart from Ferrari carried on for a bit that you know that was going to be the way forward the following year the Cooper won the world championship the year after that Cooper won the world championship and and you know so it won its a mid-engine car won its first race in 1958 from 1959 to date nothing other than a mid-engine car has ever won a championship why <clears throat> given that auto unions ran that configuration many years it's before, a good question isn't it why, why why did no one twig that that was that was going to be a, a, a faster um you know I, it just I seems guess. odd doesn't it it, it does. I guess it's because auto unions, although they were successful, they won the European Championship, which is the closest thing they, think they, they had to a world championship in 1936. Um, they weren't that successful. And in that era of the Silver Arrows, where it was Mercedes versus auto union, 1934, 5, 7, 8 and 9, it was Mercedes winning with front engine cars. So maybe people thought, well... It's not such a big deal because, you know, back in the mid-30s, it didn't change the game. Um, so, I don't know. I don't know. It, it, but, it, but it is interesting. You would have thought that engineering and mechanical knowledge um, uh, would have advanced sufficiently. Um, maybe it required something else. Maybe it needed tyre tech to come on to make the most of it. Maybe they all knew that that, in theory, was going to be the way it was going to be, but they just had to wait for something else to catch up. I don't know. Good question. So what was the big advantage in sticking the engine behind the driver? Is it chassis balance? Is it agility? I think, to be honest with you, it's pretty much everything. If you think about it, obviously, having your mass centralised, creating that low polar moment of inertia, um, is crucial. That gives you the agility. But also, think of your frontal area. You know, you haven't got a massive great engine in front of the driver, so you, so you get a big area improvement. Think of, think of lightness. You know, you haven't got drive shafts and everything else running from the front of the car to the back of the car think of traction you've got an engine sitting on your rear wheels i mean you know, the question to me there's a really surprising thing is you know why wouldn't you do it um it seems to me to be a no-brainer i mean the advantages are are, are everywhere aren't they um and you know and once they figured out how to make it work uh, they never look back okay well let's clip on we're moving into the 60s now 1961 um yeah was this a game-changing f1 car no because yeah, it's it needs to be on a different list, list but it? it's not again. Um, but we it, need no, a dead end list, so this maybe. Is, so this is the um, Ferguson P ninety nine. It is the only Formula One car ever to have won a Formula One race. Um, it didn't even win a World Championship race, but it was a legitimate Formula One race um, with uh, for Formula One teams in it. So it counts. Uh, it won the Alton Park Gold Cup in 1961 with Sterling Moss driving it and it had four-wheel drive uh, and it was slightly damp um, and Sterling really liked the car um, because he was always interested in um, innovative stuff stuff that did things differently and although you couldn't slide it around and drift it like you know in, in, in the way he just loved the fact that it would just you know you get to the apex and you just do that and out it would pop um, and it is the only as I say it's, it's, it's only there and I'll move on because it is the only four, four wheel drive car ever to have won a Grand Prix no a Formula 1 race there you go um, I, I think I saw it once at Bista Heritage just in the corner of some workshop someone yeah. pointed it out I to think, me I, I think it has won races or certainly come very close to winning races at the Goodwood Revival I mean it's still out and about um, and has been peddled you know an awful lot um, there was only one of them um, but it's still it's still, it's, it's still around somewhere God, it must be worth a fortune now. 
Yeah. Only one of them. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, fine. Well, do, do you know what? Looking at your list now, the 60s were an era of real innovation into the 70s as well. Um, yes. So, so, have, you, have you noticed what one name seems to yeah. sort of um, jump it's the out Lotus, the Lotus era, isn't it? The, yeah. the level of innovation from those guys during the 60s was extraordinary. Um, extraordinary. So the, yeah. the first on your list, 1962, the Lotus 25, um, the first yeah. monocoque chassis. Yeah. So, so presu- presumably it was lighter and stiffer. Exactly right. But I mean, the strange thing is, you know, there was nothing new about it at the time. It was just new in Formula One. I mean, the Jaguar D-Type in the 1950s had a monocoque chassis. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, there were Lancia, Lancia road cars made in the 1920s that had monocoque chassis. Um, and yeah, Formula One didn't get round to it until the 1960s. I, th- I, th- I don't know why it was really. I think they were just so wedded to the spray sphere. I think they were just so wedded to the idea of just lightness has to be everything. And they had these terrible spidery space frames, which you know, the moment you breathed on them would just fold up. Um, and yeah, Lotus came along with the monocot. And from Lotus's point of view, what it meant was because it was, um, it was stiffer, you could make it lighter um, because you could use less metal. Uh, and, you know, and again, it was just one of those moments that the, you know, and some people did, continuous space frame cars for quite a while because they took time to adapt and had to you know engineer brand new cars to combat this but quite obviously through its strength and its stiffness and its lightness um the lotus 25 was you know another total game changer um so there's that yeah so how many excuse me how many championships how many race wins did it just clean up or or yeah, no, well, when it was reliable, um, you know, those Lotus and you know, basically, and generally speaking, not always, um, but when they ran perfectly from flag to flag, largely because Jim Clark was driving them, let's face it, um, they won. Um, but, you know, they weren't, you know, they were fragile things and they broke. I mean, you know, Lotus lost more championships than it won in the 1960s just through uh, the frailty of its of its cars but yeah you put if you put jim clark in a lotus 25 or the car that succeeded it which was basically just an evo 25 which was the 33 um yeah if the car ran he won basically mm. and that was it um you know there was what a combination you would find I, i'd be, be interested to see if there was a single race that jim clark did in a 25 or a 33 where he suffered no mechanical mal- maladies and didn't win the race mm. maybe no, that's there was really interesting I mean, you know, yeah but um so yeah so an amazing thing okay and a few years later another big innovation the lotus 49 1968 using an engine as a stressed member um yeah and it was the dfe the first use of the dfe yeah amazing so this was an this was an engine that was built by ford for lotus and the great thing was you bolted it to the back of the car you know Today, you know, road cars have engines covered in, carried in subframes, um, and road cars have them because they'd be hideously unrefined if you couldn't damp out the noise of the engine. Um, but back then, they did it because, you know, you had to have something to carry the engine, and then you hung all the other stuff off the rest of the the, the rest of the chassis. And the great innovation was, why don't you make the engine part of the chassis? And then, literally, don't forget the subframe. Bolt the engine by four bolts to the back of the to the back of the monocoque. And put your engine on the back of that. Put, sorry, put your gearbox on the back of that. Take your rear suspension off the gearbox, and the entire back of the car is not just an engine and a gearbox. It's a structural. It's as much a structural part of the car as the monocoque. 
Um, and so you can imagine the stiffness you got from that. You can imagine the weight saving you got from that. Um, and again, it was just one of those moments where everybody else must have just gone, we're going to have to change everything. We're going to have to change everything because yeah. our cars, as of this moment, are obsolete. Uh, and also, you know, having, you know, the DFV is a, well, the DFV is a podcast all, 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 all by itself. You know, the, the greatest Formula One power unit that there has ever been. Uh, and, and also the power unit that not only was it wasn't actually the most powerful but it's but but because it was also very light um and very short and very stiff which is very important if you're going to use it as a stress member um it was the most what's the word sought after i guess um but it's also the engine that completely democratized formula one because anyone could go and buy one and they weren't that expensive and that's why in the 1970s you had all these amazing weird and wonderful teams just you know knocking together a chassis going and getting a Cosworth engine and a Hewland gearbox and going racing. Can you imagine that happening today? Mm, it's amazing, isn't it? Anyway. Yeah, it Enzo is. would have yeah. called them garageistas. Uh, okay. Garageistas, yes. So into the 70s, uh, Lotus 72. Yeah. So how significant yeah. is this, side radiators? Is that a really big innovation? Pretty big, yeah. Um, because of, I mean, mainly because of frontal area. Um, if you look at a Lotus 72 with that shovel snout of it, uh, and everybody and all the others have these big, big mouths on them because they had to get the air into the car. And it's just very simple, isn't it? Well, if you don't have your radios at the front, you just put them behind the wheels at the side of the car. Then suddenly, I mean, the aero advantage is, you know, you, you don't just get a lower frontal area. You get a much better, smoother flow of uh, air over the car to your rear wing. So, yeah, no, it was a big deal. And that's why the car stayed competitive. I mean, it was still winning races. It made its debut in 1970. It was still winning races in 1974. And it still raced in 1975 because its replacement, the Lotus, what would it have been, 76, um, again, they just tried too hard with it. I mean, that had um, that had a clutchless gear change that had a biplane rear. I mean, they, they tried to do all sorts of stuff with it, which didn't work. So, yeah, I mean, it was the car was competitive across six seasons. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Do, do you know what? There, there was a separate podcast in all the Lotus innovations that didn't work because I bet there's some really cool stuff in there, some great harebrained ideas that, yeah. for whatever reason, didn't come to pass. Um, well, for instance, the gas turbine, 1971, yeah. Lotus 56B. I just think it's extraordinary yeah. that they were trying all these different new technologies. I mean, innovation was just in their blood over there during the 60s I mean, and 70s. Th- 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 this was... This could have worked. The amazing thing about the gas turbine car is it could actually have worked if they got it into Formula One. So this was a car which was actually designed to be an Indy car um, because in Indy, the problem with gas turbines is um, you don't get any engine braking at all. Um, but at Indy, at Indy, you don't need it. So they designed it for Indy in 1968, but they didn't actually get around to putting it into a Formula One car until 1971, at which stage, obviously, the game moved on by three years. Um, and yeah, I mean, they did have big problems with the brakes. Um, but um, the great appeal of it was um, it was just, you know, it was, it, it was a Pratt & Whitney jet engine of which there were a bazillion. And so, you know, and they cost you buttons. They never went wrong because there were basically no moving parts in them. Uh, and so here was, here was this Formula One car. And you think of, you had a certain budget, the amount of money you could then go and spend on other stuff because you didn't have to worry about that. And it gave huge power. It was a bit heavy. Uh, and obviously the brakes were an issue, and it didn't work. But um, it's just it's just great Colin Chapman thinking, isn't it? It's just thinking so far outside the box that everybody else is sitting there going, "Oh wow, yeah, okay. Well, I hope that doesn't work because otherwise we're all in really big trouble." That Chapman strategy it could have done. 
that challenge strategy it was fantastic wasn't it just constantly look for innovations new solutions yeah. and if if one in three of them come to something you might win some races in a championship i just it's brilliant what an era that mm-hmm. must have been to to have watched and to have worked through as well so a, a gas turbine then that's how does that work that's still driving the wheels presumably yeah yeah, yeah, so, uh, yeah. So it's, it's, it not, it's, it's not providing thrust. No, no, uh, no. I don't think it would have done. Or maybe they would have... Yeah, I don't think... We, I, I should know more than this about this than I do. Uh, I blithely suck it down there without actually knowing <laughs> an awful lot about how the... Uh, car, what I do know is that Clive Chapman at Classic Team Lotus, at the moment, is restoring it. They only made it. Oh, there you go. Um, and he is... Um, he's like a pig in the proverbial over this. He's so excited about this. Um, and it ran... I think Ronnie Peterson drove it at Monza and is great... No, Emo did. Sorry, Emo drove it at Monza, and, and, and he really, really wants to get Emerson back in the car at Monza. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> That's fantastic. I mean, and, and it would have worked at Monza because it's, because it's quick and there aren't many big, big stops there. Um, yeah, we'll have to yeah. keep an eye on that one then. Um, <clears throat> okay, well, we're going to interrupt the Lotus love-in for a moment because it's 1976. Here we go. Yeah, we've got, uh, yes. a, we've got a Tyrol P34 distinctive because... Because it had six wheels. <laughs> Bizarre. Is it, yeah, isn't it extraordinary bizarre. that the F1 regulations once permitted you to have more than four wheels? I love that. Yeah. The six-wheel Tyrrell tir- is fascinating. It's fascinating largely because um, it wasn't built for the reason that everybody thought it was built. Mm. Okay, so yeah, did, people did, look did, at it. Did this have Sorry, four rear wheels or four front wheels? No, no, so there was a March and there was a Williams uh, which had four rear, rear wheels. I think it, uh, yeah. Um, but no, this was at the front, um, mm. and it raced in 1976 and 1977. Um, and it was actually, I mean, it's a, it's a much maligned car, and I'll explain to you why in a minute. Uh, but people looked at it, and they saw this very low deck with these tiny little wheels, and they thought, oh, we know why they've done that, because you're trying to reduce frontal area. Ah, uh, okay. So not, I, I because, was going to say that. Yeah, but it's not. That's not it at all, mm. because your frontal area was actually, des- was actually defined by the width of the rear wheels, because it's still yeah. what presents itself to the... So it wasn't that at all. It was basically because, A, physically, you put more rubber on the road. Mm. Yeah, You get a greater swept area of brake, because you've got four little discs make up m- more space than two big ones. Um, and you also, the bigger the wheel, the more whatever the opposite of downforce is, um, you get. So you get a big, you get a lot of lift out of big wheels. So the smaller your wheels. Um, and, and what that meant was you could run less wing on the front of the car. Yeah? Which meant if you then ran less wing on the front of the car, you could then have less wing on the back of the car, yeah, to balance it out, which meant your car actually went faster in a straight line. So mm. it was aero, but it wasn't aero for the reasons people thought. Um, oh, that's great. So it's that, the, it's those com- compounding benefits, isn't it? Where exactly. You, you, you exactly. have a little win here. You mean it means you have a big win here, all around the car in this harmonious yeah. way, and suddenly it's faster. It's brilliant. So, so, so exactly. So, so really, the idea was that you have little wheels and little tires and little brakes, all of which says to me sort of chassis going around corners. Um, but in fact, what it's doing is making the car go quicker in a straight line. Uh, it's got nothing to do with grip. Um, and it was, I mean, it was such an interesting idea. Um, it's very interesting that all the Tyrrells were named, back then were named 00 something. It was 001, 2, 3, 4, blah, blah, And they got to this and they were so unsure about it, they didn't give it a 00 name. Um, they, gave, they called it Project 34 because it was still a project. Uh, but in fact, I mean, Jodie Schechter, who, dra- who drove it, 
told me he thought the car was a piece of shit. But Patrick Depaye, who was the bloke who developed it, absolutely loved it. Um, and uh, it did really well. I mean, it won a race. Uh, Jody won in it at Andelstorp in Sweden in 1976. Uh, it had a lot of second places. I think Terrell came third, maybe, in the constructors that year. And the problem was it was coming off the back of the Jackie Stewart Terrell era where they basically just won everything. So everybody thought, oh, well, Terrell's gone off the boil. But by any other standards, in 1976, it was a really, really good car. The problem, I'll shut up about this in a second, was that in 1977, yeah, um, Goodyear were providing the tyres for almost the entire grid. Okay? And so everybody was saying, we want better tyres, better tyres, better tyres. Okay? And so Goodyear went and made better tyres for everybody at the back and everybody who ran the normal size tyres at the front. They didn't develop the little tyres because there was only one team who wanted them. Okay? So... The back of the Tyrrell was absolutely fine because they had the same nicely developed new tyres everybody else did. But at the front, they only had what they had the previous year. So the car started to understeer. Yeah. Um, and that killed it. Mm, it killed it. Tire development is what killed it. Um, it wasn't... The other thing that... The other reason it wasn't as successful as that design would have been in a modern context is that uh, racetracks were much more bumpy then. Uh, and the problem was under braking, if you think about an axle locking... And if you've got two front axles, you're effectively changing the wheelbase depending on which axle locks up. Um, and so the car could be a little unpredictable, I think. Um, and also the drivers at first couldn't see the front wheels. And you imagine you're a single seat front racing car and you can't see where the front wheels are. So they actually cut portholes in the side. I think they filled them in with perspex so they could just see where the front wheels were. But anyway, enough of that. But fascinating car and, and well, deserved to have done better than it did. Yeah, and each of those front axles were they independently suspended so they could move completely? Yeah, independently. Absolutely. Yeah, they they, they wow. all had. So I mean, the car had uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Yeah, it had um, eight wishbones at the front. Yeah, each yeah. one with its own beautiful, intricate little double wishbone. Um, oh, that's great! Yeah. That's brilliant! Cool thing. Right. Okay. Crack on then. Another Lotus. Um, late seventies. Really significant car. Ground effect. Yeah. The seventy-eight and Ground seventy-nine. Effect. Yeah, so the 78 basically tried it out and won a few things, but the 79 is where um, they really figured out how to do it. And you're now going to ask me how ground effect works. Um, <laughs> and I don't really know. Um, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's about using side pods and sealing the underside of the car with skirts um, and then using airflow under the car to... But it's effective. It's another form of sucking the car onto the road. It's like, it's, it, it's like a passive fan, if you like. Um, and actually I've heard people, I can remember Patrick Head, um, who then designed the Williams FW07, which I think was its first Grand Prix winner, um, that he said that the Lotus 79 was an amazing car, but actually because it didn't have particularly good structural rigidity, it could have been even better than it was. Um, but obviously if you've got, if you're doing this, you have to have a massively stiff structure to bolt in or else if things flopping about, you're losing your ground effect. And that's why the Williams were so good, um, was because they married ground effect to actually a properly rigid chassis. Um, and then they got, they realized the full potential of it. But in 1978, when Mario Andretti and Ronnie Pisa were racing the Lotus 79 and nobody else had it, um, again, it was a typical Lotus thing. And I, I'm now old enough to remember going to those races. Um, where as long as they finished, they pretty much won. Um, but sometimes, you know, the cars would break down. And that was really the... But Mario still won the championship by a mile. Um, but the only chance anybody else had most of the time was if the Lotuses packed up. 
I'm going to name drop now, Clang. Um, <clears throat> when I had that chance encounter with Frank Durney the other day, do you know what? The, yes. gra- the ground we covered in 10 minutes of chat was brilliant. He, he said, Patrick Head doesn't understand the first thing about aerodynamics. He said that all the, all the aero design from, for Williams in that era was other guys, particularly Durney himself. Um, and uh, there were some other things off the record that I, I actually can't share, sadly. But it was fascinating hearing, hearing a, a recognized aerodynamicist talk about how other designers, uh, you know, their, their level of understanding. Yeah, when I mean, Patrick might put his hand aero. up to that. I, I, I don't know. Mm. Mm. Um, Patrick may have really said, oh, absolutely. I was, I was really good at engineering chassis. Um, but, you know, the aero left to somebody else. I mean, yeah. he, he might put his hands up to that. I don't know. Interesting, though, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, okay, yeah. well, it's the same sort of era. And, my God, these things. The, the Renault RSO1, uh, yeah. the first turbo F1 car, it just blew up endlessly, didn't it? All the time. Relentlessly. <laughs> it, just, it just went pop, yeah. I mean, yeah, to the extent that it made its debut in 1977, it didn't win a race until 1979, despite mm. being from 77 to 79 the most powerful car on the grid. Um, I mean, it, it had a bit of a truck chassis on it as well, which didn't help. But no, it just it just kept on going pop. But you know, fair play, they persisted with it. They just kept going. They weren't didn't allow themselves to be beaten. Um, and they obviously ushered in the the whole turbo era. The sad thing about Renault's first win of a turbocharged car was that nobody remembers it because they remember that race for something else. Yeah. You must have seen Rene Arnoux and Gilles Villeneuve. Yeah. And people think that was for the, for the win, don't they? It wasn't. It wasn't. Mm. It was for second and third. Poor mm. old Jean-Pierre Jabouy was over the hills and far away. Went and won the race. Nobody noticed. <laughs> and it was such a landmark. Um, yeah. Yeah. So was he... God, I'm just trying to think. He might have been. Was, was Jabouy the first Frenchman to win a French Grand Prix in a French car? I bet he was. I oh, bet God, he was. That's a good question. Maybe somebody, Maybe somebody can enlighten us about that or i could just look it up um but and, you know, poor chap there he is you know on home territory that wonderful circuit at dijon sweeping over the line everybody's looking the other way trying to see who's going to come second <laughs> that's brilliant um, isn't it yeah, and he's got so, no yeah, clue what's my... going on behind him of course of course he doesn't no no he's just going you please don't break please don't break please don't break <laughs> <laughs> that's great uh, yeah, right yeah. okay we're moving into the 80s then so the, really the lotus era is over by now isn't it um, yeah, sadly, but they're still, sadly. They're still yeah. looking for innovations with the 88 and a twin chassis. Yeah, see, the 88 is a great... Um, it's, it's a sad car. I mean, it was... You know, Colin Chapman, I mean, he regarded that as his masterpiece. Um, and, you know, it's entered, and I use the word carefully, because it didn't actually race, but it entered Formula One in 1981, which is the year before Chapman died. Um, and you know, people think of it as the twin chassis Lotus, which it was. It basically, the idea was that the the, um, the problem with ground effect cars is the only way you could really get and make them work was to have effectively have them with no suspension, because the moment there was any body roll, you just lose the ground effect. So you needed the car, and the cars were. You can imagine they were absolutely horrible to drive, and the limiting factor became the driver's ability to hang on to this thing. Um, because they had effectively no suspension. I mean, some you know you hear stories about being the primary springing medium being the flex on the sidewall of the tyres, that sort of thing. Um, and so Chapman had this idea of doing a car with no suspension, and then another car within it with suspension. 
And so you could get absolutely max out on the ground effect. And then the driver would be in a sprung chassis uh, and would actually be able to control the thing. I mean, it's just, it's just genius. Um, and that's what people remember that car for. But it was also the first carbon fiber Formula One car. I mean, McLaren says their MP4 one is the first carbon fiber Formula One car. And it kind of was because it was the first one that actually raced. Um, but whereas uh, McLaren got a company in America, an aerospace company in America called Hercules to do their carbon tub for them, Lotus did their own. And it was in the 80, and it was in the 88. And it went to a race. It got slung out of it. But nevertheless, it went to a race before the McLaren went to a race. So I think you could at least argue that it was there first. Um, it certainly went out to practice for a race before the McLaren did. So, you know, wow, what a loss. Um, and, you know, it's just, just a shame that a car with that much innovation um, could uh, just got banned. I don't think it was actually that quick when it ran, but only because it was so early in its development. But it could have gone on to be, you know, another one of these game-changing cars. But sadly, it never happened. And that 88, it's, it's a classic Team Lotus car, and they still run it, don't they? I think our mate Dario had a go in it at some point. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know how many they built. I mean, they built, they certainly built more than one. But yes, right. there's, yeah, certainly, um, yeah, there's one up there. Yeah. Okay, well, let's skip ahead to the late 80s. Uh, the Ferrari 640, the first paddle shift gearbox. I, I remember hearing the podcast about this. I can't remember who the drivers were. You'll tell me. Um, but I, I think that, I th- oh, I maybe not. <laughs> I think they had real trouble with it, they didn't they? Yeah, it was. It, it, it was just. It was just. Um, certainly, the, the the car that succeeded it, the six four one. I mean, these these are John Barnard cars, um, so very very clever cars. Um, was was more reliable. Um, no, but the six forty just broke down all the time. But no, and I've only got it in there, um, and I'm, I'm going to skip over it because you're going to ask me who drove it, and that's going to be embarrassing um, because uh, <laughs> I, 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 I could have a good guess. I mean, it would have been Prost, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would have been Prost. But who would have been with him? Mansell? Yeah, maybe. Uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> but it was, you know, as, as, as we know, I mean, that was more than 30 years ago now. And to this day, cars are changing gear in exactly the same way that car mm. did then. And it's also, it's quite rare. I know that there was a, um, a Ferrari earlier in the list, 375, but that wasn't really technical innovation. It didn't do anything which hadn't been done before. I mean, people have built V12 engines before. That, that, that was, that was a regulation thing, wasn't it? Yeah, that was regulation. Mm. So it's actually, it's very, I mean, Ferrari have always been very conservative with these things. You know, they were amongst the last to put an engine behind the driver. They're amongst the last to adopt disc brakes. They didn't get on top of the monocoque thing very quickly. Um, and it's actually, this. I kind of put it in there, not because the, the 640 was a particularly... Um, successful car it wasn't i put it in there because um it's just a good it's an example a very rare example of ferrari actually doing something before anybody else yeah and also it's one of those innovations where you can see once it's reliable everyone will have to do it and there'll be no going back no exactly exactly Yeah. yeah i mean you know is it any different to what you know porsche were doing with the 962 and pdk um in the 1980s you know porsche had had uh, automatic transmissions. I mean, Chaparral had an automatic transmission in a, you know, the car that won the BOAC 500, which was a world championship round in 1967. Um, the Chaparral 2J had an automatic gearbox in it. Um, you know, a conventional torque converter automatic gearbox uh, up against, you know, Ferrari P4s and GT40s and that sort of thing. So it wasn't the first car to get rid of the clutch pedal, <coughs> but it was absolutely the first to do it the way that all the others now do it. Mm. Okay, well, we're skipping ahead to the modern era now, um, and we'll rattle through these quite quickly. So the, the Braun, oh, that, the whole story of that season was 
just sensational. Um, although, I mean, in hindsight, actually, perhaps not so much because that team had the that year's car, the 2009 car, was funded by Honda, so they had enormous resource available to them. It was just Honda's timing, really, that made it such an incredible story when they pulled out. Um, but we know that 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 2009 Braun had that double diffuser. Um, and a couple of other teams had it as well. I think I think Red Bull had one, and maybe Toyota as well. Um, but it was it did was they, Braun did that they, put did it they to develop best use. It? Did they see it on the Braun and then develop it after that, or, or did they come to it, have the same idea at the same time? I can't remember. It's a good question. Don't know. It's a good question. Uh, but certainly, but Braun also, put it to best use, Bra- but only at the start of yeah. the season. Yeah. Um, but they also had a Mercedes engine, and, it, and and to me, it just goes to show. I mean, you know, the the the, the car clearly was good and probably had been good for quite a long time. Um, and their problems had just been it just didn't have the firepower. And then you see you get a car that is that good, and then you and, and then you put a three pointed star on the back of it, and you know you're up up on the way, aren't you? Um, and that team, as we know, has gone on to do some fairly <laughs> successful stuff since. Just a little bit, yeah. Um, so the last car on your list is the 2010 McLaren, which had that F duct thing, which was an interesting. Yeah. Just a, it wasn't a movable aero device. I think the driver used a knee well, to block a it, hole. It was it, that, that's what moved, wasn't it? It was the driver's yeah. leg who moved, which moved, mm. yeah. And, and it, it stalled, and it stalled the, the rear wing. over the rear wing. Yeah. Mm. It's lovely innovation. Though, yeah, really clever. Yeah. Um, okay, well there we go. Those, those are some game-changing F1 cars. We should rattle through the most successful F1 cars. We'll just knock these out quickly. Um, so the, the 1950 Alpha 158 won every race that season, apart from the Indy 500, which is a sort of a normalist yeah, race we, I, I, for F1. And, we, and we've already mentioned that, so yeah, um, yeah we know about that. Uh, 52 to 53, the Ferrari 500. Um, oh, yes. So I mentioned, I mentioned that. I mean, it's as much mm. about the driver as it is about the car. But from June 1952 to June 1953, nobody other than Alberto Ascari in his Ferrari 500, won a race. He won the lot. Clean sweep. I mean, he was helped by the fact that the Fangio was injured for a lot of it, so he was kind of like out of the picture. Otherwise, he may have had something to say about it. But nobody, for an entire season, effectively, okay, or two half seasons, if you like, um, nobody else won a race. That is extraordinary. Yeah, that is extraordinary. Um, So the the first part of the 70s, the Lotus 72, remarkable car, active for six seasons... Uh, and it won multiple drivers and constructors titles. That's just incredible. And then we skip ahead to 1988 in the McLaren MP44, that extraordinary uh, Senna Prost season. Uh, it won 15 out of 16 races. And it didn't win. Uh, it, it, we've mentioned this before, haven't we? It didn't win the we race have. at, was it at Monza or was it at another, yeah, another no, Italian circuit? It was, it, it it was. It, no, it was, it, was, it was at Monza um, a few weeks after Enzo died and Ferrari had a 1-2. Um, we, we won't dwell on it now, but it's still one of, to me, one of the uh, spookiest thing that's um, ever happened in, in motor racing. Um, you know, Ferrari were they weren't quite nowhere all season, but they were no one was any, anywhere near McLaren that, that year. And then at that race, at that time, you know, it's not like Ferrari didn't just win the race after Enzo's death; they won the race on home soil, and it was a one-two. I mean, you couldn't make it up, could you? Anyway. It is incredible. And then in the yeah. airport waiting lounge on the way home, Gordon Murray had a conversation about a road car. He did. He did. And the flight was delayed. That's why they had the conversation. They were standing around and sitting in a departure lounge, presumably quite a posh departure lounge, I would think, um, you know, twiddling their thumbs. And Gordon went, you know, I just had this itch. I, I just feel the need. I, I've just always wanted to do a road car. What do you think? And it was Crichton Brown and Ron Dennis were there. Um, and I think Mansour Oje was there as well. Um, and they went, well, we could have a look at that. And the result was the McLaren F1. Amazing. 
Amazing. Yeah. Um, 2002, the height of the Schumacher era, the Ferrari F2002, won 15 out of 17 races. And then in 2016, Mercedes with W07 won 19 out of 21. I mean, it is, it's so impressive when teams do this, but I really hope. If I could wave a wand, no team would ever dominate Formula One the way that Ferrari and Mercedes have done recently. I completely agree. I completely agree. I mean, it's the, it's the people who love Formula One who lose. I mean, you know, you can't blame them. You can't blame any team for designing a car better than anybody else or hiring better drivers or putting together the best team. Um, but it was like, you know, it's like when, you know, when Audi were dominating and were winning everything in sports car racing. Um, you know, absolutely fair play to them. They put together an amazing program. But goodness me, I wanted somebody else to win something. Good. Let's talk about the most rubbish F1 car of all time. I'm just going to sit back and hear you talk about this because your notes made me laugh. Um, so this is a thing called the... You probably won't even remember it. It, it, was, it, it was around briefly in the 1990 season. Um, it was called the Life L190. And Life came out. I think the team owner's surname was Vita. So that's where Life came from. Um, and really... All he wanted to do, there was a bloke called Franco Rocci, who, does, who was an ex-Ferrari designer who designed an engine, which was a W12. Not a W12 like, we think of W12 now as we think of Bentley W12s, uh, which aren't really W12s. They're basically uh, now two narrow-angle V6 engines on a common crankshaft. This was a W12 insofar as you had a bank of cylinders there, one there, and one there. So it's what they call in broad arrow formation. And this was a formation which actually in the 1920s was very successful in aircraft. Um, and you can see the appeal of it because if you think about it, if you have three banks of four cylinders, you know, the, one of the problems with V12 engines is they're very long and it's quite difficult to make them stiff. Um, and, and they put other design limitations on it. So if you actually do a very short 12-cylinder engine, which can be very stiff at the same time, you can see that there are some advantages, and this was the idea behind it. <coughs> Unfortunately, when they stuck it on the bench, it produced about 480 horsepower, when what you kind of needed to be somewhere near the front back then was about 650. Um, so it was, it was the thick end of 200 horsepower short. The other problem was nobody wanted the engine. And the idea was that they'd just sell this engine as a customer unit to other people who wanted it. And nobody did. So they thought, well, we better go stick it in a car then. And so they built, they bought a defunct chassis from somewhere uh, and stuck it in that, which was the heaviest chassis in the grid. So they had the combination of the heaviest car with the least powerful engine in it. Um, and it was unbelievably unreliable. David Brabham um, tried to race it. It did 14, it turned up to 14 races failed to qualify for 14 races. Um, I read somewhere that it never did more than eight laps without braking. Um, David Brabham said that there was once a time when they didn't even have a tyre pressure gauge. They had to go and borrow one from the guys next door. I mean, it was... It was reputedly, which gives you an idea of how slow it was, it was slower than a Formula 3000 car. And this was a Formula 1 machine. Um, so it was, you know, it was a joke and it, it, it survived how, how it managed to get 14 races. I've no idea, but I can't think of maybe somebody in the comments will uh, tell us of a less successful formula one. Well, it wasn't just a formula one car. It was a formula one team. It was a formula one, everything. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, oh, played dear. 14, failed to qualify for 14. And, you know, sometimes it was, you know, a double digit number of seconds slower than anything else. Mm. That's extraordinary. Um, yeah. Okay, well, we don't have too much time left. So I, d I just want to talk, you wrote a piece for the Intercooler 
um, about driving a Porsche Formula One car. Was that the 718? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That went up last week. Uh, so how many F1 cars have you driven? Few. I don't know. Wow. Uh, and are they, are uh, they just a, a cut above anything else, as I imagine them to be? It, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, okay, so I, I've driven a sort of, what have I, I mean, I've driven everything from, you know, a sort of turbo era, 1980s, insane thousand horsepower thing to that Porsche 718, which I think had 180 horsepower. So you can't just, you know, say that, but they, I mean, it's, they're all very light, obviously. Um, and they're all incredibly focused. Uh, I, I tend to not get on that well with them because I rarely fit in them. And if you're going to drive a car like that, um, if you're not comfortable, that's that's really really problematic. But I'm well, you know, I'm six foot three and a bit, um, and you know, well, I have been the thick end of sixteen stone as well. So you know, I don't fit. So, but yes, if you can find yourself, I mean, you know, I have occasionally I drove a Fittipaldi, a thing called an F5A, which is one of those typical nineteen seventies, you know, DFE powered Hewlett gearbox. Um, you know, 1970s Formula One cars. It might have even been early 80s. Um, but I, because its owner was a big lad, um, same sort of size as me, I actually fitted in the thing. And so I could actually have a proper go in it. Um, and that was amazing. I also drove an Eagle, Dan Gurney's Eagle, and Dan was the same height as me, so I fitted in that. So, and, and, and yeah, they are, they are extraordinary things because they're not designed to do anything else. And they are... You know, when you do anything, when you example anything that is the absolute pinnacle of what technology could do at the time, um, they are remarkable. Um, the 718, if you haven't seen the story on the intercooler, didn't say Drive Nation, haha. Um, the extraordinary thing about that, it, was, it, was, it wasn't meant to be a Formula One car. It started life as a sports car in the late 1950s, did quite well. And they suddenly realised that with a 1500 engine, if they put the steering wheel in the mid- middle, they could just go and do Formula 2 with it. It then went and did Formula 2, one against, you know, works purpose-built Formula 2 cars from Ferrari and from Lotus and from Cooper. And then they announced um, that from 1961, Formula 1 would run to Formula 2 rules. And they thought, hang on, we've got ourselves a Formula 1 car here. Um, and so they ran it in 1961 with Dan Gurney driving it. Um, and it did really well. It did really, really well. I mean, it came, it, had, it came second three times in eight races. It missed winning a race by 0.1 of a second. Um, and I think Porsche came third in the Constructors' Championship. Uh, and, the car, and the car carried on being raced by privateers until the end of 1964. So it had this enormously long life, um, despite the fact that it was never designed to do the job that it ended up doing. Uh, and it was, it was a lovely thing to drive. People think, oh, it's a one and a half litre car and you look and it's all spindly. You know, and you forget that it's got the same power to weight ratio as a modern GT3 RS 911. So it's really, really quick. Um, I would think it would lap a lot quicker than a GT3 RS. It'd be interesting to see um, mm. just because it's so it's light. A great story. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, a lovely, incredibly delicate um, thing with an incredible four cam force on their engine howling away behind you. Um, to me, if you get in any of these things, it's just a privilege just to be in them, and, and your duty is to bring them back in the right number of bits. You know, you're not necessarily going to go skidding around in Porsches only 718. Um, but yeah, it was a great thing to, to, to have had a go. It was a while ago now, but I'll never forget it. Okay, with all this in mind, if you could drive one Formula One car that you haven't had a go in, what would it be? Give, can, can we presume that somehow I'll, somehow I'll fit in it? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not going to go for a modern one because the thing to say the the thing to say would be Lewis's latest thing because that's the ultimate and that mm. would be tempting. But 
I, I don't think that I could understand it at all. Um, mm. I don't think even... You remember when I drove that Rodin thing uh, at the end yeah. of 2019? And I spent two days going up through driving a McLaren GT4 car and then a Formula 3 car and then getting up to that so that I could understand what a 675 horsepower single-seat car with a load of downforce was like. I don't think I would ever get to a stage where I could understand a modern Formula 1 car to that level. So I want to... Okay, do you know what I want to drive? I want to drive a 12-cylinder Ferrari Formula 1 car because that, to me, is what Formula 1 is. So I would want... I, I, I mean, okay, I, would, I want it to have a proper gearbox. So it would be... Gilles Villeneuve's 1978 312 T3. Nick <laughs> yeah. Mason has one. Hint, hint. Hello, Nick. Yeah. <laughs> Get in touch. <laughs> Hello, Nick. Yeah, and, and, and because it wouldn't have much downforce, and because it wouldn't have stupid amounts of power, um, and I, I would back myself to be able to at least get a decent feel it. I've, I know I would because I've driven cars like that before and you know, and I wouldn't break any lap records and I wouldn't even necessarily be that quick at it, but I wouldn't disgrace myself in it. And I'd be driving a Formula 1 12-cylinder Ferrari, which is, to me, is what Formula 1's all about. We'll come back to 12-cylinder Ferraris in a moment. But I, I've been thinking about well, my really answer good. to this question. And uh, I mean, you're completely right. The modern stuff would be, I mean, even the older stuff, but certainly a modern Formula 1 car would be so far beyond me. However... I'm quite drawn to the safety and strength of a modern Formula One car. I think some of the sort of 60s and 70s stuff, they look so spindly. I just think, well, if something goes wrong and I put it in a tyre barrier, I don't fancy my chances. So I I also would like a car with power steering. Um, But I think the the latest turbo hybrid stuff, 1,000 horsepower, it's going to be this is ridiculous because any F1 car is so far beyond me, but particularly these modern, really the, the latest stuff. So I'm going for a 2008 McLaren, Hamilton's first championship car. Um, and I understand that things like the braking force and the cornering G would absolutely ruin me, but it's got a paddle shift yeah. gearbox. It's got power steering. Yeah. Um, it's got yeah. one of those dinky little 2.4 litre V8s that scream yeah. away, but don't have tons scream, of Scream, yeah. It's a good so call. They also, they look, most cars look amazing because they come from that era before they took all the, yeah. all the flicks and the paddles and everything else. So it, they are so intricate, aren't they? Mm, yeah, they um, are. They had that bridge, yeah. the bridge section over the front wing. Um, all yeah, these weird forms. They, it looks like yeah. some kind of alien craft from Independence Day, actually. And particularly in that chrome colour scheme, they, they do look extraordinary. So that, so that would be... That'd be the one I'd like to drive. But anyway, let's leave all the Formula One stuff there because we've got a couple of minutes left. And I want to tell you what I'm off to do literally 40 minutes from now. I'm going to drive a V12 Ferrari for the first time ever. No. It's good, isn't it? Where have you been? I, I honestly, I don't know. I, I've never driven a V12 Ferrari properly. Although that is a lie, okay? Because I did once move our mate Chris Harris's F12 from just off the driveway outside my house onto the driveway so that doesn't count. 10 meters well technically it does i also i also drove his 512 tr from outside of bristol into the middle of bristol um it, it, now is is that technically a v12 i know it's a flat engine it's a v12 oh please let's not have okay. this conversation it's a hundred. It's a one <laughs> it is not okay it is a flat 12 and it's a v12 it's flat because yeah. it's flat yeah, it's yeah. a V12 because its V-angle is 100. What it is not is a boxer. Okay, so it's, yeah, fine. Okay, because the pistons don't do that. They do that. Yeah, yeah. Okay? Yeah, so they, yeah, um, okay, so they, they do or don't share a bearing or something. 
Um, yeah. But anyway, so it does occur to me that when I just said to you, "Where have you been?" That I just sort of make out like I'm a bloke who drives 12 cylinder Ferraris every other day of the week. I, don't. Um, uh, I say, where have you been in the context of, of being a motoring journalist? Um, yeah. You know, uh, many of whom have had the privilege of driving 12 cylinder Ferraris. I'm so excited to hear what you think of that. Um, yeah. It's it, 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 well, you're going to have you're going to have a proper go in it. Um, it's, yeah, I want to know what you think of its character relative to a 12 cylinder Lamborghini, mm-hmm. and indeed relative to any other engine configuration, particularly something like a V10. Yeah, um, good. Okay, well, it's, a, it's an 812 GTS. I'm going to have a good blast in it. I'm going to take it into South Wales, so you might hear me go by. Um, and Excellent. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it next week. Look forward to it. Uh, good. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, no calls to action this week, uh, but just make sure you tune in again next week. Thank you for listening. Bye, everyone. All the best.